He said, bring all the tithe into the storehouse of the Lord. We obey you today. We thank you for the opportunity beyond the tithe to come and say, well, we have a favorite missionary. We have a favorite project. We have a favorite uh, uh, benevolence ministry. Whatever the situation is, we thank you, God, that you have given us the garden of finances, and we are to be good gardeners and produce. Thank you for Financial Peace University that is helping so many people get their finances under Uh, proper management and under good leadership. We pray your blessing on all the different training uh, mechanisms they use there. May it further people toward their dreams, their full potential financially. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you give. You might want to give a little extra today because I forgot the offering last Sunday and uh, this did not bless the uh, accounting department too much. Today we are talking about our decisions, uh, decisions, decisions. Uh, everything we make is a decision. And so I thought I got a, uh, three little cartoons here. The first one is, my decision is maybe, and that's final. <laughs> so uh, maybe you had that boss, I'm not sure. I don't know if you'll like this one or not. It cracks me up. I think this is beautiful. Wife, I'm not talking to you today. Husband, okay. Wife, don't you want to know the reason? Husband, no, I respect and trust your decision. (laughs) I thought so, I thought, yeah. Were there any decisions made at the grocers conference in Hawaii? Yes, we only made one. We decided to have the next conference in Hawaii. So, I like these kind of decisions. We're talking about becoming people of realized potential. And I hope that it gets in your soul because you alone can actually do this. External uh, pressure doesn't work. It never has. It never will. Uh, The fullest of your potential comes up. It bubbles up out of your soul. It bubbles up out of uh, who you are. Uh, It was a funny story to me. But uh, Rick Benjamin, years ago, one of my uh, best friends, Rick Benjamin, said he'd gone through this big, long class and all this, and he said, uh, he said, I am so excited. I said, why is that? He said, I know why God put me on the planet. I said, what's that? To pastor Abbott Loop Community Church. So that was really cool. Like a month or two later, he retired. But uh, uh, that's the part that's funny. But uh, it, uh, it's, it's that part of getting comfortable with, uh, you know, they say, what's the reason for life? I think, uh, I think the best answer is life is the reason. I'm not, I'm not big on finding a purpose. I'm not big on, on uh, finding some kind of, uh, of maybe external uh, goal as much as I am on finding out who I am and living that out. And uh, that was really a challenge for me as a young pastor. I, I didn't know what it meant to be a pastor, and I didn't. I kind of knew what it meant to be me, but I didn't know if the two matched. And uh, so, for maybe maybe five to ten years of my life as a senior pastor, I put away my personality and just sort of. I don't want to. You know, things I think are funny, other people don't think are funny, and they get all offended. And I was like, okay, well, I won't be funny anymore because I don't want to offend anybody. And and I like the Seahawks, and Bill likes the Cowboys, so I won't talk about football because I don't want to offend Cowboys fans who never make it to the Super Bowl and stuff like that. You know, I'll just like I won't be me anymore. And then and then when you when you get up and you you don't really feel alive. You know, if if you take all the things that kind of make you who you are and you turn them off. Then you kind of wonder, well, who am I? You know what? What is this? Uh, what is this deal? And and so I'm I'm more about I'm more about finding those things that God put inside of each of us that can go to our fullest potential, that can go to uh, capacities. They exist in capacity, but they don't exist yet in concrete existence. And so we're saying to, to the Lord. Uh, Lord, I'd really like you to make this uh, concrete in my life. The point today, and this is an introduction to uh, four other talks I'll be giving, but nonetheless, the point today is that any way we slice it, our full potential is related to our decisions. 
Our full potential is related to our decisions. And what we want is we want our decisions to position us for our deepest desire. And so the notion I'm after today is that my decisions will position me for my deepest desire. And I'm trusting that the Lord will open our understanding to this idea of positioning ourselves. Uh, We talked about Joseph was positioned to save all of Israel against his will. He didn't want to have his brothers throw him in the pit. He didn't want to be sold into slavery. He didn't want 14 years in jail. But God was positioning him even against his will. Then we talked briefly about Zacchaeus. And uh, he was positioning himself, and I don't think he expected this. I just think he was short. And, uh, and he went there to watch Jesus, and all the tall people got in front of him. And so he thought to himself, Jesus is going that way. I'm going to go to that tree over there, climb up that tree, and I'm going to just uh, be ready. When Jesus comes, I'll be able to see him. So he positioned himself out of his own free will, out of his interests, and uh, something fantastic happened there. I'm guessing that many of you have developed a wonderful potential just out of a kind of something you are interested in. And uh, a funny thing for me is when I was a teenager, my mom was assembly of God through and through. She said, son, you're going to do Bible quiz or fine arts. Back then it was called teen talent. I said, okay, I I, I don't have any talent, so I'm going to go to quiz team. So I go to quiz team and I sit there and the first day they said, we're going to memorize Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. So I raised my hand. I said, did you say we're going to memorize Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians? They said, yeah. I said, I'm going to do teen talent. <laughs> and uh, so I got out. I got out of that memory work right away. And uh, and my, my mom said, you don't have any talent, but maybe you could sing. So uh, I, I practiced this song, go ahead, drive the nails in my hands, laugh at me, work. And I won. It was a total funny thing. And, uh, and, uh, and so that kind of launched me into my singing career that lasted a couple of days. But, uh, uh, I just sort of like fell into that potential. I, I never dreamed. Uh, I'll never forget when I got a call from Mark Buntain in Calcutta, India. And he said, uh, I understand that you like youth ministry and that you're a singer. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm not really a singer. I just didn't want to memorize the Bible. And uh, my, now this little singing gift took me to India. And uh, I could go on. I just sort of fell into that potential without, it wasn't a plan. It wasn't intent. It was, it was a decision not to memorize those four books of the Bible, but to move into something. And so some of you... Your, your, uh, your potential came out of, maybe you got a job in XYZ, but you were really good in XYZ with just a, uh, uh, something entirely different, maybe uh, ABC. And so in your corporation, they moved you from, from uh, kind of where you actually got your job into another area where you had your interest and you excelled there. Your decisions position you for your greatest desire. And my, my point today is that Christians live a well-decided life, a well-decided life within an encompassing, unique framework. We don't, we don't live a well-decided life the same way a non-believer lives a well-decided life. And sometimes non-believers make better decisions than believers, which is ironic, but sometimes that happens, that people who don't know God at all make some pretty amazing decisions. But their decisions are ultimately futile if, in fact, it doesn't come from the human being's deepest desire. So here's what I think is different about you reaching your full potential and a non-believer reaching their full potential. Because prior to this idea of uh, let's say, personal core values. Have you taken a class on, on decision-making and they ask you, what are your core values? What do you, what do you deeply value? What is your purpose? What is your mission statement? 
And I have a mission statement, making the latent leadership in Christianity into active leadership. And so my, my mission statement is to help you make whatever leadership is inside of you, whatever it, leadership interests you, making that into active leadership. I love it. I get a big kick out of that. It's a lot of fun. But prior to that, a Christian goes before a mission statement. A Christian goes before a purpose statement. A Christian goes before their core values. And by doing that, they come to term with the human being's deepest desire. We're talking today about decisions that position us for our deepest desire. Decisions and desires are a closely woven tapestry. Decisions and desire are a closely woven tapestry. Most of us decide things that we desire. Why did you turn right? Because I wanted to turn right. It was a desire I had. Why did you eat the whole tub of cookie dough? Because I desired the whole tub of cookie dough. And so decisions and desires are a closely woven tapestry. For the Christian, we learn to live at a deeper level of our desire. Here's what Larry Crabb in the book Shattered Dreams says. The highest dream we could ever dream, the wish that if granted could make us happier than any other blessing, is to know God. To actually experience Him. And so while we talk about our full potential, as we talk about our decisions that that shape our lives... We don't start with core values. We don't start with purpose statements. And we don't start with uh, mission statements. We start with my deepest longing is to know God and to actually experience Him. Big shout out to our board of directors. Every year we reevaluate the chief end of Muldoon Community Assembly. And for many years in a row, and uh, this year again, we come back to this. We exist, especially on the weekend, but we exist in everything we do that you might experience God. We want you to experience God. Why? Because that's your deepest longing. That's the, God put that there. That's before he put in you a desire to be a musician. That's before he put in you a desire to be an engineer. Before he put in you a desire to be a nurse. Before he put in you a desire to be a mom or a dad. He put in you the desire to actually know him and experience him. In Psalm 62, the Bible says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. I like the NIV a little bit better on Psalm 62 just because I memorized it that way. My soul finds rest in God alone. And so while, while we're talking about reaching our fullest potential, we realize that in one way you could reach great potential and never tap into that deepest desire to know God. And... Uh, uh, it's possible that, in fact, you would you would have what humanity might call a great life. Go, man, he's got a really great life going. But if, in fact, in your great life, you haven't found a way to experience God, you will always have a sense that something's missing. I noticed that about kind of outlandishly uh, visible sinners, people that sort of flaunt their sin, I noticed that uh, they flaunt their sin at one pound, and that gives them a sense of, of uh, fulfillment. But pretty soon, that runs out, and now they flaunt their sin at two pounds. And then pretty soon, the joy of that runs out, and they flaunt their sin at 20 pounds. Because they're looking to fill a deep desire for God, and at first... A pound of sin will numb your longing for God. And you effectively numbed your longing for God. But that one pound of Novocaine, it wears off pretty quick. 
and now you're at two pounds and three pounds, and, and before you know it, it's, it's, uh, it's no amount of sin can numb the pain of a heart that's actually longing for God. Or have you noticed maybe the super wealthy? They try to numb at times their longing for God with another car. And I'm not saying this about Jay Leno, but he comes to mind when I mention cars. I know he has over a thousand vehicles. I don't know exactly how many he has, but he has well over a thousand vehicles. And you wonder, uh, let's just say that it works for my illustration. You wonder if the 3,000th car will actually numb the longing for God. You wonder if the, uh, there's a, where I work out, I uh, haven't been there for a few weeks, speaking of potential, but anyways, where I work out, there's a lady, I see her every time I go, and she's on the stair climber. I, if I go in the morning, she's there. If I go in the evening, she's there. I think maybe she lives on the stair climber, and I wonder if the next hour on the stair climber will effectively numb her longing that is deeply for being the beloved of God. There's so many ways that we come to this idea of, you know what, I don't want to feel my longing for God. I, I'll, I'll numb it. Maybe one more, here, this is where it gets weird. What if church is a way to numb your longing for God? What if, what if, what if deep in my soul is a longing for God but I'm afraid to experience that longing for God because I'm not sure if God will come through or I don't like the way he might come through. And so I preach another sermon. I start another church service. I uh, fill in the blank. And, and so we come to this place of saying good decisions are, are decisions that posture us to experience that deepest longing of our soul who is for God alone. A guy named Meister Eckhart he was born in 1260 AD. He said, the soul must long for God in order to be set aflame by God's love. Amen. You want to be set aflame by God's love? He says, you have to long for God in order for that to happen. But if the soul yet cannot feel the longing, then it must long for the longing. To long for the longing is also from God. Last night in our prayer meeting, I walked around each chair in this room in life. I didn't cover the balcony, sorry. Uh, Lord left the prayers up to the balcony. But anyways, I walked around and I asked God about myself. I think I long for you, God. I think I long for you. But then I think my longing for you is so small. My longing for you is not, as, uh, is not as pronounced as I want it to be in my conscious understanding. I want to, uh, how about this verse? As the deer panteth for the water brook, so my soul longeth after thee, O God. Isn't that a beautiful song? As the deer panteth for, is it true though? Is it really true of our lives that we've come to feel in the depths of our soul a longing after God? A wise decision, a decision that positions you for your full potential, embraces that longing for God. A well-decided Christian life is evident in those who understand this, that their deepest desire is to know and experience God. For example, the Bible says in Psalm 37, 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. Or King James, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord when he delights in his way. Lord, I, I, I have this big plan for my life. I have a personal board of directors. I have a mission statement. I have core values. I'm going to go out and I'm going to direct my life toward all these great ends. And he says, that's wonderful. If you delight in my ways, I'll order your steps. And so we come to this place of saying to the Lord, I really want to reach my fullest potential and my fullest potential includes launching my life off of this deep desire to know God. 
Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11 are my favorite on this idea of what do I consider a loss that I might consider Christ a gain. And uh, one way of saying it is the Bible says, if here is the word of God on this side and over here is silver and gold, much silver and gold, take the word of God over the silver and gold. I got to work on on that in my heart. Uh, The Bible says if over here is the sweetest of honey, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb, and over here is the word of God, don't take the honey, take the word of God. And Paul kind of deals with that here in Philippians chapter 3, maybe my favorite Philippian passage. And he reads as follows. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here many of you have this memorized. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. I put it in a chart form in your notes. You'll see on one side of the chart, considered it a loss. Paul Paul is saying, you know, knowing Jesus is such a great thing that I'm considering whatever good in my life, I'm considering that a loss. If you read earlier in the passage, he's naming a bunch of really positive things. I'm a a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I got this whole religious thing figured out. Remember, I said that church can be something that numbs you from your heart for God. Paul's religion numbed him from his heart from God. I'm just relying in the fact that I'm a Pharisee. I'm just relying in the fact that I'm a, I'm a, a circumcised on the eighth day. I'm relying in my religious history. All good things of sorts. But Paul said, you know, I've come to a place of realizing to lead my life well, I'm going to consider all those things a great loss. I'm just going to count them as a loss. Verse number 8, indeed, I count everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Isn't that amazing? I'm asking you a tough question today and asking me a tough question. Uh, So for me, uh, I save uh, 10% of my income. That's the way I've rolled. When I went to kindergarten, my mom, they, they started a bank account. And I didn't ever go to kindergarten. When I went to first grade, they started a bank account. Uh, and I had a little yellow bank card. And uh, my mom gave me a dollar. And I put 10 cents in my bank account. And I put 10 cents in the tithe. And uh, my first deposit was a buck. 50, uh, what, 55 years later, however long ago that was, I put 10% uh, of my income into savings. Just been doing that for my whole life. And let's just say that all of a sudden, every penny of it's gone. And I go, praise God, it's gone because I have the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. It's right, but it doesn't feel good. It's like, oh Lord, I, I still, I still put some trust in things. And so in my prayer time last night, I was saying, God, I want to trust you like Paul did. I want to have, to be able to say the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And I said some scary prayers. This scared me last night. I said, God, I want to say knowing you is better than having my health. 
Knowing you is better than having my savings. Knowing you is better than anything I could ever want, God. Knowing you. And then I start singing the, uh, not real old, but medium old song. Knowing you, Jesus. Knowing you. There is no greater thing. You're my life. You're my all. Uh, I just say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you. And, and then I think, do I really want to go to prison with Paul? Do I really want to lose everything with Paul? And, and I'm, I'm, okay, God, uh, back to Meister Eckhart's line. Lord, I need you to help me long to long for that. I need you to help me because I want to, uh, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. If you lose every single thing today, every single thing in your life, and gain Christ, it's a good exchange. It doesn't feel like it because we let ourselves get anchored in all kinds of things. But the fact is, in order that I may gain Christ. Now, I'm setting the stage for where I'm headed in my talk today about making wise decisions. And sometimes the wise decision is the decision that bubbles up out of a soul that says, I want to know you, God. I want to know you, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And I, I, I don't want to force it on the passage, but I don't think it's fair to say at least of this verse that Paul is saying, once I'm in, I'm in, man. Once I, once I dialed in on this, it's done for life. Paul is writing toward the end of his life, and he's not in park, and he's not in neutral. Uh, uh, let's just say that uh, you're 85 years old, like my mom, and you lived, you're going to live to 90. It's easy to go in park for those last five years. It's easy to go into neutral. It's easy to just kind of drift. But the Apostle Paul says, I don't even have another year on this planet. There, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And you know what? I'm going to keep pressing on because I want to know him. I'm going to keep this. I'm going to keep the pedal to the metal on knowing him. Yeah, here's me. I have no idea the answer to this. So questions you can't answer are unique. But anyways, here's a question we can't answer. What was Paul's net worth? Was Paul a millionaire? Was Paul a billionaire? Was Paul flat broke? We don't know. And it's not too important to Paul because he was interested in the fact that you knew that he had an abundance of Christ in his life. And that was more important than for him to tell us his net value. So our most important decisions then are to be made in harmony with this deepest desire. It, it gets really practical and. uh uh, I'm going to go to the book of Ruth in just a moment. It gets really practical. And, and you say, you know, he loves me. He's handsome. He has all the gifts I've ever wanted in a mate. He's tremendous or she's perfect for me. Now, of course, they don't love the Lord. They're not a follower of Christ. They're, they, 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 oh, good, good guy, but he's never placed his trust in Christ or else he just did it in order for you to say yes on the marriage. And, and you say, Kent, are you really sure that the most important decisions of my life bubble up out of this desire to know God? I'm really sure of this. I'm really sure of this. Can you imagine the power in a home where mom and dad or husband and wife and the kids, all of them are living out their decisions with their deepest desire is to know God? Can you imagine the organization that operates when the decisions are made on God? What decision can we make as an organization that will take us deeper into knowing who you are? So before the mission statement, before the core values, before the purpose statements, comes up out of the soul of the believer, their deepest desire, which is to know God. All right, let's turn to Ruth now. In the book of Ruth, we have a most interesting situation. Let's read it. It's in verses 15 to 18. And, and she said, 
Naomi. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. I'll give a brief little uh, story and I'll come back to Ruth in another message. Naomi is a Jewish lady and her husband is a Limelech. A Limelech. And there's a famine in Bethlehem. There's no food in Bethlehem. So Elimelech moves his wife and his two boys over to Moab. Moab is culturally unacceptable to Jewish people, but when a famine, you'll do things that are unusual. So Elimelech, Naomi, and their two boys move to Moab. Elimelech suddenly dies. So now we have a Jewish widow in a pagan culture with two boys. Their two boys marry Moabite women. Who are you going to marry? The women that are around you. When you live in Moab, you marry Moabites can be the deal. So Orpah and Ruth marry Moabite men. Then suddenly both boys die. So now Naomi is a widow without a man in her life, and now she is a mother without children in her life. And Orpah and Ruth are now widows as well. So Naomi decides to move back to Bethlehem. I'm going home. You know what? I'm I'm in a famine over here, and there might not be any food back in Bethlehem, but at least I'll be like with my family. And so, Orpah, you go back to your people and serve your gods. Ruth, you go back to your family and serve your gods. I'm going home. I'm out of here. And Orpah says, good plan. The worst thing maybe on the planet at the time would to be a Moabite widow in Israel. This would not be a pretty scene. Orpah says, I get it. I'm going back to my people. Ruth goes, no, I'm not doing that. I am going to do as we just read. And she made the most amazing statement. And what I am suggesting today is, uh, is, is significant. I'm suggesting that Ruth laid out the four most crucial decisions every human being has to make. Can you believe that? I'm suggesting that a Moabite widow made a most prolific statement of your four most important decisions. And again, remember, I'm talking before you write your mission statement, before you come to your core values, before you come to your gifting and your skill set, I'm saying that out of a heart that longs for God, Ruth nailed the four most important decisions you'll ever make in your life. Number one, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. It's the first side, your crucial decision, as outlined by Ruth. Which persons will I journey with and stay? About you and about me, one of the foremost crucial decisions you will ever make are who will you closely travel with in your life? Who will you closely travel with in your life? I know that that friendship, spouse, choosing your spouse, choosing your close friends is uh, not generally a teaching that we have on a Sunday in many of our settings. But when it comes to the idea of your fullest potential, remember last week, it's not about going faster alone. It's about going better together. And so the first most crucial decision you make is who will your spouse be or who will your best friends be? 
The Bible even teaches us in Proverbs 18, 24, and there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Growing up, they always said there's a friend that sticks closer to the, than a brother, and that friend is Jesus. That is, yes, that's not what Proverbs is talking about. Proverbs is not talking about Jesus. Proverbs is talking about, for you, one of the most important things in your life is who your best friend will be. Or maybe you're blessed and you have several best friends. And we say, okay, Ruth, I'm asking that you would help me understand the most crucial decisions I could ever make. A friend that sticks closer than a brother. We'll talk about that. Uh, just read a recent survey, and I'll bring that. I think I'm doing that one tonight. But I just read a recent survey that uh, 75% of Americans are not satisfied with their friendships. And that uh, Americans, uh, you uh, two to one, two to one, Americans prefer fewer close friends than many distant friends. And to step up, and I'm talking about your mission statement, I'm talking about your realizing your full potential. In essence, your fullest potential is connected to the persons that you closely travel with. One quick illustration for me, I was working, I've told you this in uh, several different ways, this story applies in my life. I got a job, we were, uh, I was about 16, 17 years old, uh, we were moving furniture from one building to another building, we load the truck up, I get in the passenger seat, the driver uh, pulls into Goose Lake. And I'm in a van, and I go, we're not going to Goose Lake. We're hauling this. Uh, it was from Alieska Pipeline Building. Uh, we're taking it to a storage place. I said, we're going to a storage place. He goes, it'll just take a second. And he pulled a mirror out of his pocket. I'm, a, I'm an Assemblies of God Christian kid. I don't know what mirrors are for. And then he puts a white substance on the mirror, and he takes a razor blade, and he starts doing this. And I knew enough to know this is not a guy I want to travel with. I thought to myself, I was only 16 years old. I thought to myself, if the police come up right now, I'm guilty because I'm in this car. And I thought, I'm leaving. So I get out of the car, and it wasn't far from my house, maybe a mile or two to my house. And I walked home. And uh, my mom said, what are you doing? I said, well, I just, I think I quit my job. I'm not exactly sure what happened, but I left. And uh, my mom, at first she was, what? You can't quit your job two, two hours in. Then she realized, she said, hey, you know, I raised a son who knew that's not the kind of guy you want to travel with. You don't want, you don't want that association in your life. And when we, when we, when we stop for just a moment, uh, we, we say, okay, God, I receive the challenge of Ruth. Who am I going to journey with in this life? And uh, I hope that, uh, we'll talk about that. Let's go to the second one. Your people will be my people. The second most important decision you will make in your life is who your people group will be. Who's your people? Uh, who's your tribe? And so we all, we all hopefully have dialed in and we're making choices on who our best friend, does anybody know who Jesus' best friend was? According to the scripture, it was John the beloved. John was Jesus' best friend. And, and, uh, and then Peter was pretty, pretty much in there. And so Peter, James, and John were sort of his three. But then he also had a tribe. He didn't just travel with those three or just that one. He had sort of a group that he traveled in. And, and the, second, the second most important decision you'll ever make in your life is who your tribe will be. The third most important decision you'll ever make in your life, and your God shall be my God. The third most important decision you'll ever make in your life is, who will be my God? Who will be my God? In Joshua 24, verse number 15, it says, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I wanted you to see Joshua is making this crucial decision. Uh, who will be his God? And I'll work on that in that message, but I'm not for you. I'm not really saying choose the God of the Bible. 
because I think you already chose the God of the Bible, most of you. But if you haven't yet chosen the God of the Bible, it's not choosing the God of the Bible is the most important thing about you. To say, I have chosen to be an atheist, that's the most important thing about you. To say, I have chosen, uh, I have chosen to follow Buddha is the most important thing about you. I have chosen Mohammed. I have chosen Allah. I have chosen uh, fill in the blank. The most important decision about you is who God will be. So in the Bible, in Mark chapter 8, verse number 27, Jesus is going to Caesarea Philippi, and he says to the disciples, Who do men say that I am? Christian philosophers and Christian theologians say that's the most important verse in the Bible. Who do men say that I am? Because in fact, the most important decision in our lives is who do we say God is? For example, Allah. Allah is known as a deity. And Allah is adamant, according to Muhammad, Allah is adamant, Allah is God, and he has no son. If you go into the Dome of the Rock, which is on Temple Mount in Jerusalem, they don't let, uh, they don't let non-Muslims in any longer. But if you went in, all around the top of the Dome of the Rock, it says Allah is God and he has no son. Allah is God and he has no son. Written again and again and again, all around. If you make Allah who has no son your God, it is the most important decision you've ever made in your life. You say, I got a great life going. I mean, everything's rolling. It is perfect. But you've chosen the wrong God. You've chosen uh, a God that is not accurate or true. It's the most important decision you ever make. However, in this setting, I'm not really talking about choosing the God of the Bible. I'm talking about the facets you choose about the God of the Bible. I'm asking myself, uh, if, uh, if A.W. Tozer at the bottom of this page, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, A.W. Tozer. If, if what comes to my mind as a Christian about God is distant, if what comes to my mind about God is, is uh, corrective judge, if what comes to my mind about God is is uh, a punishing, uh, a vitriolic deity. Even though I follow the God of the Bible, I want to be able to shape my understanding of the God of the Bible in such a way that it's accurate according to the text. And so here, the third most important decision you ever make is who will be your God. And the fourth most important decision you will ever make is will I fully commit to these three decisions that I just made? And here's how Ruth said it. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death separates me from you. For example, in my life, your life, uh, who am I journeying with? And the ones I talk about most often is uh, uh, Rick and Mel as an external friend. But, but it works as well for my uh, wife Paula because it's at a much deeper level there. Did anybody say this in your wedding vows? Until death do us part. And why you said that is you were joining Ruth in saying one of the most important decisions I could ever make is that I'm fully committed to this. Even even uh, to Rick and Mel, who aren't listening right now, but if they were, to Rick and Mel, may nothing but death separate me from being a friend with Rick and Mel. Are you, are, have you, do you have any throwaway friends? Or, or are you the throwaway friends? Matt, pastoring has crushed my friendship hard over the years. 
I don't know if you, if you have any of that. People come in and I've, I've had people throw away friendship with me because the youth pastor wasn't cool enough. And people say, you know what, I need, a, I need a cool youth pastor, and so I'm out of this church, and basically drop me like a hot potato because the youth pastor wasn't cool enough because their kids were upperly mobile white guys. And uh, you guys are like, I thought we were friends here, and you threw me away because of that. You, you know what I'm talking about? And, and uh, this, this one was the most shocking to me. And I'm not a counselor after this. I thought, I think I'm quitting this counseling uh, like part of my job. Uh, this guy comes into my office. He goes, uh, my, my wife is, uh, my wife, I'm going to divorce her. That's what I'm going to do. And she's sitting there crying. I said, okay, uh, that's a pretty big decision, you know. Uh, why would you do that? She's gained seven pounds, he said. And he left, he's, they're divorced today over seven pounds. And you read the scripture and you hear Ruth going, you know what, honey? Far be it from me if anything but death separates me from you. You get it? The power of that. You say, you know what, I'm out of this tribe. I'm out, I, I, I don't want this tribe anymore. This tribe doesn't match me or whatever your tribe is. Uh, in the notes, I call it a group or a cohort or a tribe. And you just go, you know what, this tribe, just, this just isn't working for me. But there's somewhere where you say, you know what, tribe? Far be it from me if anything but death separates me from this tribe. And who will be my God? Well, God... I'm just throwing you away because uh, uh, you didn't do what I wanted or great disappointment came into my life or fill in the blank of the variety of ways that things can happen in your life and, and you want to throw away God. You want to say, I need a God that answers my prayers. I, I need a God that does what I ask him to do. I, I need a God that'll be who I want him to be and and the fact of the matter is that God is who he is. He's not who I want him to be. And, and so we come to God and we say, you know what? I'm just, I just think I'm out of here. I'm not, I'll, I'll, here's a great illustration. My sister, get to, I get to see her pretty soon. But anyways, my sister used to sit right, right where you're sitting, uh, my Sister Kessler. My sister would sit there and she was faithful and she was, she was, she was uh, a tither and she came every week. But one day... Prior to all of that, she's talking to my dad, and she says, Dad, you're claiming to be a man of God, but you're living in adultery, and you need to, you either need to quit trying to say you're a man of God, or you need to deal with that adultery. And my dad said, thank you, daughter, or thank you, whatever he called her yet. He said, I won't be talking to you anymore. And it's been, it's been uh, uh, 34 years. And my dad hasn't said one word to my sister. My sister went home and she was doing her devotions. And she said, you know what, God? If that's how you answer prayers, I think I'm done. If that's, if that's the reward I get for following you all these years, I don't think I like you anymore. You're not, you're just like, you're really a disappointment, God. And for five, six years, I don't remember how long, my sister sat here. She did the church thing. She did the religious thing. But in her heart, she said, you know what? You're not my God right now. You're too disappointing to me. I'll never forget. It was district council, and the preacher was Everett Stenhouse. It was in this room, and Everett Stenhouse stood here, and he preached, and he, he said, you know, have you ever gone skiing, and, and while you're skiing, yeah, come on out, band, you have ever gone skiing, and, and halfway down, you stopped at the roundhouse to get a cup of hot chocolate, and then the hot chocolate was so good, and the room was so warm, you never went back up the mountain to ski the rest of the day. In other words, you stopped halfway 
And then he used Israel as an illustration. And he said, some of you, you've come halfway. And halfway there, your heart's been broken. Halfway there, you got distracted. Halfway there, it got really tough. And he said, I just want to be the guy that helps you today. Get out of the roundhouse and back on the top of the mountain. I want to help you get skiing again. I, I want to help you get on with your life. And, and uh, I was on the platform because it was in our church. And he gave the altar call. And I looked out. And my, my big sister, she's littler than me, I saw her get up. And I saw her come and kneel down in front of that speaker over there. And I watched her weep and weep and weep and say, God, I didn't think I wanted you to be my God anymore because you disappointed me. You let me down. You didn't do what I wanted you to do. But right over there, several years after, she said, God, if that's how you are, I'm out. My sister said, you know what, God? Where you go, I go. And where you stay, I'll stay. And you are my God. And all these years later, Riette D. Redfern, my big sis, has been saying, far be it from me if anything but death separates me from this God. You get the idea I'm talking about? And I've got to close because we have a missionary offering to do, and I didn't know how the ending would go. It's kind of gone heavy on me the way I've approached the subject. But last night in my prayer time, it dawned on me, there's a whole bunch of people in my tribe who need me to know God. And I want to know God. Does anybody want to know God? Uh, last night, I'm praying, I want to know you, God. I want to know you, God. I want to know you, God. I want to long for you. When my longer is too small, make, give me a bigger longing for you. I want to long for you, oh God. And then it hit me. Jonathan Taylor Redfern, my oldest son, needs me to know God. My tribe needs me to know God. I said, God, I got to know you just for my son. He's got to know you too, but I want him to be able to say, my, the leader of my tribe knows God. And then I thought of, of Cassie and I thought of Elijah and I began to weep and say, God, I got to know you for Elijah. Elijah needs a man in his tribe who knows God. And Lord, Danae and Judah, God, they need a man in their tribe who knows you. And then I realized it's not all of a sudden it expands and says, it's not just the biggest decision I ever make for me. It's the biggest decision I make for my whole tribe. And then I began to think of you. And I didn't know who all would be here, but I knew, I knew God, Blaine needs a pastor who knows you. Moy needs a pastor who knows you. David Wilson needs a pastor who knows you. Brian Fick needs a pastor. Our board needs a pastor. But I need a board who knows you. I need a Brian who knows you. And it began to become so clear that the four most important decisions we ever make impact us all. I close with this. And Ruth made four decisions and became the great-grandmother of David. And the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandma of Joseph, who God gave Jesus to raise. Because she made the right four decisions. I pray you make the same right four decisions too. Brian, could you give